Morning, church. Hope you are all are well. My name is Mark. I serve as one of the pastors here at the Hallows Church. It's good to be with you this morning. Um, it is Advent. We are reaching kind of the near. This is Christmas week, and I'm very excited. I hope you are all excited and you all have good um, Christmas plans to celebrate. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Luke chapter 2? where we're going to be looking at the second half of chapter 2 and the continuation of kind of what happened at Jesus' birth. So last week was a huge week. Jesus was born. Jesus became a baby. It was awesome. Hallelujah. Uh, Jesus was born, and we got this picture, and we see this, all of these dynamics at play that seem to be, like Pastor Andrew was telling us, seem to be problematic, They seemed to be hindrances to God's will, ended up being quite the opposite. They they ended up being a fulfillment of God's will to bring joy to the world because Christ had come and he had come in all of the ways that looked like, and from the world's perspective, all off and wrong to have a mother not be able to find a place to to go. And even before that, to have a, a family need to travel over to um, to Bethlehem uh, for a census seems so inconvenient at a time when she's due to climb up all this elevation, then to have no place and to deliver baby Jesus in a manger, all of it perfectly accomplished God's will in a way that is completely baffling to us. And then this morning, we're going to kind of follow the same dynamic, but it's going to be in a slightly different way where our scene kind of comes out of the, of the manger and it looks at what was happening in the, in the neighborhood, if you will. It was looking at the sheep of the, or, sorry, not the sheep. Sheep are like hardly in it. The, it's looking at the shepherds <laughs> from the sheep's perspective. <laughs> no, no. Uh, this is looking at the shepherds and what happens to them. And it is baffling and it is beautiful, but it's also simple. So with that, before we begin, would you pray with me? God, thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love that you show us through Jesus. God, would you continue to do so in every area of frustration, in every area of pain, in every area that seems to be overlooked. God, would you show us the way your glory is seen and felt through the Holy Spirit by Jesus. God, be with us this morning as we study your scriptures. We love you in Christ's name. Amen. So if you have your your Bibles open to Luke chapter 2, that's where we're going to be. But before we jump in, I remember I was, there's this... uh, Back when I was in my early 20s, I was doing missionary work in Cambodia, like I've kind of mentioned a few times before. And in this sense, as it, we just kind of landed, and we were only a few weeks or so into this trip. But as a young 20-something, my faith and my knowledge of my faith, my understanding of my faith, were kind of reaching a point of tension, where there was some things that, as a Christian, I had believed I just had yet not yet quite known how and why I believed them. It's this beautiful moment in, in discipleship, in someone's faith, when their knowledge of what they believe is now starting to kind of form. They're starting to understand. I, I, I'm not alone in that. I was one of many Christians who, who have had that moment. And as I was doing that, the, the concept of God's glory was very difficult for me to comprehend. Like, how do... So, and this is the reason why, is because my friends who I was walking with, who were discipling me, um, in in a sense, they were like, God's glory is beyond our understanding. Which then I would say, well, then how can I understand it? (laughs) You can't, Mark. You just gotta know. It's beyond your understanding. I'm like, I don't know where that leaves me. (laughs) What 
what am I supposed to do with that, <laughs> you know? And, and then so I say, I want to do it. I believe. Help me believe, God. I don't know what it means, but I want to believe it, right? So anyway, so there's moments like that where I, I, I'm hearing something. I'm hearing a concept. I'm hearing something that I should know, and I'm kind of embarrassed to tell people that I don't quite understand it. All this leads up to I'm in Cambodia, and I get really sick. And I'm in my bed, and we're in this um, orphanage. We're staying in an orphanage where there's about 30-something orphans, little kids, all ranging from 4 to 12 years old. And we're sitting there, and we're kind of doing different activities with them, and we're going around our little village, and we're kind of sharing the gospel with different people. But I was out because I was sick, and I remember laying in my bed, and as I was there, I remember kind of hearing off in the distance, all quiet, no one's around, and I just hear the little murmurings of like little kids kind of coming up the stairs. And the other folks on my team um, had told them that I was sick, I wasn't feeling very well. And all these little kids kind of come up quietly and then they all huddle around me. And I remember I couldn't, I could, we couldn't talk to them because they spoke different language. And then I remember all of them just laying their little tiny hands on me through my mosquito net, and then they all start begin praying. And as they're praying, I'm, I'm laying there. I couldn't understand anything they were saying. But in the same moment, the only word I could describe was glorious. It was as if God's glory became tangible for me to experience because God's glory was now simple. It was, dis it was felt through the prayers of these little, little ones praying over me. And to me, some type of this concept of God's glory was in a sense unfathomable, un un understandable, and yet so simple and so beautiful all at the same time. And our story brings us into that kind of moment. Because Advent, what we celebrate now, is not that the birth of Jesus is too complex beyond our recognition. It's really the fact that it's so simple. It's too simple. To understand the simplicity of the incarnation, some have thought of Jesus' birth like a symphony. A symphony is complex and powerful, magnificent in every sense of the word. It's meant to, its power is meant to like fill um, auditoriums and theaters. But when Jesus became human, when Jesus became a baby, he didn't come as a symphony. He came as like a folk tune. He came simple. As like a song a child would sing, easy and unintimidating. And that's the majesty and the glory of Jesus' birth. That's what we mean by our title for today is when glory comes down. Because when glory comes down, something so magnificent, so beautiful, so unattainable becomes simple, unintimidating, and beautiful. The glory of God in the gospel of Jesus brings dignity to sinners and sufferers like us. In this passage, we're going to see glory brought up three times, three distinct times. And in each time, that demonstrates a different kind of dynamic of glory. So Luke describes for us these moments of Jesus' birth. And the first kind of dynamic of glory that we see is in verses 8 and 9. So let me draw your attention there to verse 8 and 9, where we see a disturbing glory. So this is verse 8. It says, in the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over the flock. Verse 9. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. 
So you might ask, what is so disturbing about this moment? That's a strange word. Let me explain. The, the disturbing element of this, usually, even though it isn't a description, it's because of its context. Now, I, well, I'll be honest, I don't think of the word disturbing when I normally think about baby Jesus laying in the manger and the shepherds in the fields at night. The song does not say anything about disturbing to me. When I go to Leavenworth and I go into the Christmas store, have you guys been to the Christmas store in Leavenworth? Yeah, yeah, you all have. When you go into the Christmas store, there's nothing disturbing about it. It's like one of the best places on earth. It's like Christmas Disneyland. And up there, you see like every single nativity scene. And every single shepherd is polished, looks like a something, a really pretty baby thing. I don't know. It's just like really nice and well-groomed, well-kept. The context, though, is a bit misleading because the disturbing glory that I'm talking about is really the context to which our story is actually in. Shepherds were not clean, polished folk. They were not the ones who were the exemplary leaders of the people. Normally, sometimes we kind of think of shepherds like Psalm 23. We think of the shepherds like David, a future coming king. We think of shepherds like these nativity scenes that we would see but in reality shepherds were the most overlooked outcasted people in the entire society the only step down from a shepherd was a leper in the uh, according to the mishnah which is a historical jewish book they described that these shepherds were lower than these, than them, or were just a notch above lepers, but they were completely outside people. They were outsiders. They had one job to do, and if done well, then no one is going to bother them, but people will just ignore them. Outside people. So the context of what we see asks the question, why would God's glory come to shepherds first? In the most outcast people, an angel of the Lord and the presence of God, the glory of the Lord is shining all around them. Why would God's glory come to the shepherds first? And it's Friends, the message of the gospel in that just that one visual moment, it's because in the visit of God, it reminds us that God comes to the needy and the poor in spirit. This is a message that Luke is going to continue to display in his gospel, is that God's glory comes to the poor and the needy in spirit to lift them up to lift them up. God does not come to the self-sufficient. He comes to the needy. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26 through 29, it says, Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something. Isn't that beautiful? So that no one may boast in his presence. It's the juxtaposition of God's glory. Is that where we would think royalty would lay, we're baffled because God's glory is amongst those who are seen as complete outsiders. He comes to the insignificant without changing his nature. And that kind of leads us to the other disturbing element of this, which is the glory of God is disturbing because of context, 
and because of contrast. God's glory in this context doesn't change in its nature. Hence, they were terrified. They were terrified, super scared. In any sense of the language that you see, everyone can imagine and knows that kind of feeling. Verse 9, the angel of the Lord stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. And this brings us back to so many instances in scripture where we see the glory shining down like a bright light, shining before either a person or Israel or people, and everyone is scared. Everyone is scared. And why? It's because when people, when humans, are in the very presence of the glory of the Lord, the contrast of God's glory to human nature is so vast and so strong that we can't help or humans cannot help but shrink back in being unable to fully grasp or to even approach it. It is too great for us to handle. Moses removing his sandals and Isaiah kind of having his uh, mouth touched by burning coal before coming um, from the altar. And later, the disciples kneeling before Jesus, unable to fully look at him on the Mount of Transfiguration. And all of this is kind of defined in Romans 3, 23, where it tells us, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our humanity, our human condition, our fallenness is seen for all its, in, ev- in all of its complexity before the glory of the Lord. In July, of 20, or in July 2010, Paul Crowther, a professor of astrophysics, he announced that he, was, he and his research team had discovered a star that they described as the brightest star ever found in the universe. Not even a a welder's helmet could help someone face this light. The mass of the star was roughly 265 times that of our sun. But if we think about that in terms of its brightness, when we think about it in terms of its brightness, this star, currently named, it has a really fun name, R316A1, so creative. This star is not twice as bright as our sun. Because that would even be overwhelming in itself. It's not ten times brighter than our sun. It's not a hundred times brighter than our sun. It's not a thousand times brighter than our sun. It's not even a million times brighter than our sun. I know the suspense is killing you. It is 10 million times brighter than our sun. To which you all said, wow. <laughs> right? Thank you. Thank you. I was, leaving you, I was leading you up on the, on the cliffhanger there. To be able, sunscreen to handle that is not even a consideration. What would it take? How much would it take for us to be mediated through the brightness of this sun. That is like the glory of God to people. It is so bright, so unattainable, that it is foolish to think someone can just look at it. And God, in his grace, through the scriptures, we see him telling people, you can't handle it. Right? He tells them, lay out these, do these certain things. Remember when um, all of Israel was gathering around the mountain, right? And he had the cloud kind of over, kind of over uh, taking the entire mountain where people couldn't see. And he said, don't bring any living things up here or they will die. Don't come up here. Even when there was the presence of God was in the tabernacle, in the wilderness, 
and the uh, priests or the sons of Aaron, they go in and they just don't really care. They're being, they're misusing their position and they think that they can just go in and see the glory of the Lord. What happened? They died instantly. God was telling to them and has communicated to us through the scriptures that his glory is so vast and so beyond our ability to sense it that in, when we do experience in it, it is truly terrifying. Because like the sun, we are unable to handle it without a mediator. It is the power none of us is able to approach on our own. But then we have this passage where that same glory that can be so disturbing, so terrifying, is now suddenly disarming. God's once disturbing glory is now a disarming glory. Let's continue to read verses um, 10 through 12. But the angel of the Lord said to them, Don't be afraid. For look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. This glory was disarming for two reasons. The first is it's disarming by the message. The good news that the angel said in this is this gospel. It's this disarming glory. Verse 11 is so powerful because that too is the image of the gospel message, which he does say. In this, the shepherds, the shepherds were in a world lacking joy as overlooked people as outside people no good tidings think about that no one ever said to them good tidings for all generations it had been generations of no good tidings it had been generations of no joy it had been generations of a people afraid of tyranny of oppression it had been generations of a world struck into this place where governments were going and moving around them. And it had been generations filled with sadness, of loathing, of despair. And these shepherds were the very representation of what humanity faced. A people without good tidings. But the angel of the Lord had a message. The angel of the Lord had euangelio, good news. The angel of the Lord had the good news, the gospel. If the shepherds were humanity's representation of humanity's heart before a holy God, this message delivered to a broken people was not one of condemnation, but celebration, an invitation to experience this unattainable glory of God in a simple, tangible way. Christ is born. And notice the names, too, that describe Jesus in this moment. It's so, uh, it's so awesome how, the, how he says this, where he says, For a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. So there we have three titles, three names given from Jesus. And I want to address each of them, because even though we use them all interchangeably, each of them has kind of its own meaning behind it. A savior, a savior is born for you. This refers to Jesus's purpose and his posture, right? He will confront all of the sin 
of the world to comfort and to be the kinsman redeemer. Back in Ruth, remember we saw a kinsman redeemer there. The kinsman redeemer, he's going to redeem his people who are unable to redeem themselves. He has come to save. The Savior is for you. I think sometimes we think too much and make too many assumptions in our head and believe the lie that the Savior is for them. But in me and my loneliness and my frustrations and my difficulties in life, where's my Savior? Friends, Jesus is for you. He redeemed you. He loves you. He is your Savior. Amen. Amen. He is your Savior. He's not just someone else's. There is a personal relationship with Jesus. As our Redeemer, He comes to us when we are unable to help ourselves. But more than that, another element is the Messiah, or in some of your translations, it's going to say the Christ. Christ the Lord. Christ or the Messiah. Both are, have similar meanings. Both re, uh, refer to his personhood, right? His royalty. Some of your translations, yeah, they say Christ or Messiah, but it means the same expression, meaning and referring to the son of David. This is now going back to, this, to show who Jesus was, his personhood, his royalty, as one who will confront the chaos of the world and bring peace. He is the one who's going to bring peace, the son of David, the Christ, Messiah. But then if you look again at this third title that we're given, the Lord, Jesus is Lord, and this refers to his power. We have the first, his Savior, referring to his purpose, his posture, Christ, referring to his personhood, the Lord refers to his power, his authority. Christ the Lord carries the world on his shoulders, has supreme authority. And it is endless. His reign will never end. That's why we refer to him as the King of Kings, Lord of Lords. The Savior, Messiah, and Lord has been born to deliver sinners and sufferers like you and like me to bring this good news and to see that we are not left in our sin and our suffering, but that God has found a way in his magnificent grace to bring us into his fold through his son. Another element, Jesus, this Jesus, this Savior, this Messiah, this Lord, came for the overlooked to fill them with recognition and value. Jesus came to the marginalized, came to the oppressed people, lost in sin, lost in transgression, to say one thing, to say this message, none are too far gone for me. None are too far gone for Jesus. He can deliver. He will help. He will save. Because, why? Hebrews 7 tells us, because he is able to save to the uttermost who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus would later say in Mark chapter 1, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Same words that the angel is speaking to these shepherds now. 
God's glory is disarmed, not just from this message of the good news, but also because this Jesus is in a manger. God's glory is disarmed by the manger. Because there's nothing intimidating about a baby, right? None of us, actually, whoa, I'm almost challenged. It is a little intimidating when you're a first parent and you're afraid to drop the baby. I will say that. Holding a baby for the first time can be a little intimidating. But other than that, there is nothing intimidating about a baby. To my point, nothing intimidating. Especially, there's nothing intimidating about a baby that's laying in an animal food trough. Right? That baby is not going to do anything to you. It is completely helpless. And that's the point. That's the beauty of God's glory becoming tangible and disarming to us. Is we would look, if we were there, friends, if we were there, we would look at that baby and we would not see much. We would say, what is so special about this? If we had not been, if we hadn't been like the shepherds and had all of this stuff revealed to us. And in that sense, Jesus disarms his glory by becoming this infant, right? So that we would find how approachable he is. But there's another dynamic that he also is expressing and showing in the manger. Herman Bavinke, a Dutch theologian, he describes the manger kind of in this way, in that Jesus' first movement away from glory was a movement towards humiliation. And what he does is from here we see that Jesus' life on earth is not one that we sometimes find depicted in movies or that we kind of put our American experience in of a baby born of nothing in the, in, in, the, um, in the manger and then rising to prominence, being in front of a bunch of people. There's a sense that we kind of think that Jesus is kind of becoming like famous in this. But it's really important for us to think about that's not the case at all. Jesus is not rising up to fame. Jesus is lowering himself to a lower and lower depth of humility. It starts, he descends lower and lower into the human condition, embracing, following the will of the Father, giving up his glory, the further and further down he goes away from glory. The way down, so, so this is what um, Herman Bavink would say. He says, the way down into these depths was marked by tears. We had the conception, birth, the lowly life in Nazareth, baptism and temptation, agony in Gethsemane, con uh, condemnation. You had crucifixion, you had death. And then you had burial. Do you see how it just gets lower and lower from there? Jesus was going further and further down, not up. The way led ever, ever farther down from his home with the Father. And it led ever nearer to us in the fellowship of our sin and death. Until finally, in the deepest depth of his suffering he gave an utterance to the anxious plea for God not to forget about him. And then, just then, he would utter the words, it is finished. Friends, do you see how Jesus gave up his glory so that God's glory would be disarming for us. Jesus is completely sinless and perfect and yet took on all of our sin so that we would never travel to that depth but that we would be lifted up into glory. 
John 1, 14, what we read earlier in verse 18, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He, we observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Friend, this is Jesus. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The one and only son who is himself God is at the father's side and he has revealed him. So when we see Jesus descending in story after story of the lower, go, moving into lower depths of humanity, of embracing, taking on our sin, taking on our failures, taking on all of our shortcomings in the human condition, everything, we see God's heart and God himself. Jesus was the, was love itself, was perfect, and yet at the same time was the most approachable person in the history of the entire world. He was the most approachable person in the entire world. No one could come up to him and think that they were lower than him. And that is why he had so many friends with the outcasts, with people who were constantly overlooked. Because Jesus was someone, was the only one, who would look someone completely lost in, in sin. In, take, for example, uh, Matthew, the tax collector, robbing his people to their face. Jesus is the only person who would look at him. Scripture tells us that Jesus looked at Matthew in the face. And in that moment, he experienced the glory of God because the glory of God was not one that he had to shy away from. It's one that he could look at and see in all of its beauty the humility and love of God that he has for his people. The glory of God isn't just disarming because of Jesus. It is also dignifying. Let's continue on in verses 13 through 20. And this, this is where we're going to see just this dignifying glory that God displays through this story. Verse 13, it says, Suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly hosts with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors, favors. When the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Verse 16, they hurried off and they found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was laying in the manger. After seeing them, they reported the message they, all, they were told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. So much, so much in there. And I want to I take this section here, and when we think about God giving us dignity through Jesus, there's a few elements at play, but first what I, what I want to see is how God's glory dignified the shepherds and Mary and Joseph because they had this new dignity of having a new proximity. They were placed in new proximity. What do I mean by that? As soon as the angel finished his words, a multitude of heavenly hosts appeared, right? If that wasn't surprising, just the angel being there and the glory of God, how much more can these people take, right? A multitude, and that's not like referring to 50, that's not 150, that's like beyond count. I could set up the same thing. It's not 10 times bigger. It's not 20 times bigger. I'm just kidding. I won't do that again. Uh, but it is beyond count, right? It's what we want to imagine is this multitude being from horizon, expanding the horizon, 
heavenly hosts. And honestly, like what better, like what, what angel has something better to do than to witness and celebrate the coming king, the coming Messiah, right? Everyone's worshiping. Every angel's worshiping. But here's the, here's the, the beauty of that, is that the shepherds were there. In this celebration of the heavenly host, the shepherds, the ones who were ignored by everybody, outsiders, were now insiders. Isn't that cool? Outsiders were insiders. They were the first who got to hear this one moment in history, a heavenly host proclaim peace on earth to people he favors. They would say, that's me. God favors me. Friends, that's something someone, I think, needs to hear. God favors you. Not because of all of the difficult things that you're doing. Not because of all of the good things that you're doing. But because he favors you. You are his child. He loves you. He is for you. In the same celebration that these angels declared out, peace on earth applies to you. It's not just for the shepherds. It's to you. God favors those in need. And he comes to alleviate their need by covering them with Jesus' peace. Poor, broken, anxious, forgotten, overlooked people find their dignity and value in the loving arms of God. Amen? God doesn't stand apart from sinners and sufferers struggling in this world. He moves towards them. Jesus comes to us to deliver us and pro provide a way so that we would never be separated from the loving arms of God. No height or depth. Right? No angels or demons, no nothing can separate us from the love of God that we have in Christ our Lord. That is, amen, yes, amen. That is the proximity that we have been given through Jesus. But now within that new proximity, now that we as outsiders are now insiders, now that we are celebrating with the heavenly hosts, we've got new priorities, right? We've got new priorities. What do the shepherds say? Let's go straight to Bethlehem and to see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And I love that response because nothing is as important as finding a major. The sheep can wait. If all of this happened, surely they're going to be taken care of, right? Their priorities have changed when God is involved. Friends, as Christians, our priorities have changed when God is involved. When God is involved, we are able to do and act boldly and in ways that we ourselves would not quite have the power to do. But I want to I think about this for a second. As you see this dy dynamic of these new priorities, you also see when you look at Mary and you look at the shepherds, as Mary is hearing everything that's happened, how are her priorities reflected? They're reflected through, through um, meditating on all that God has done. Nothing is as important as being in this moment. Priorities change, but as the priorities change, our worship deepens. And worship set with the right priorities, we find our personalities fitting and experiencing God's work in our lives. And what, is that, what does that look like? It means that when 
all of our priorities are following Christ, it means that some of us are going to run. Some of us are going to stand in awe. And some of us are going to sit quietly and meditate on the goodness of God. And all of it is a yes. All of it is a yes. God doesn't call us to all act in the exact same way. God knows as his children that we are going to worship him and reflect and be an expression of worship to him in ways that our, our personalities and God's divinity kind of come in harmony. And we see it through the expressions of worship when people's priorities are set. Some will run. Some will stand in awe. And others will sit and meditate on the goodness of God. I remember seeing this one time where I was in this like worship event where there's this big, huge multicultural worship night where people all over different all over the world had come in kind of this central missionary kind of uh, place for this event to worship and it was it was amazing it was one of the first moments i got to see worship through different multicultural angles and expressions and as the music's playing everyone's coming up and and the band itself there's this guy playing percussion that's using different uh, percussion, percussive elements and different instruments from around the world. He's playing them. All these things are happening. And all of a sudden, as everyone's worshiping, the, these, this group of ballet dancers from, from uh, America, they get up and they just start doing this dance like in the middle of the stage. And everyone's like, whoa, that was really cool. Wow, this is awesome. They're just, work, you know, just doing their thing. They're worshiping. But then all of a sudden, this group of New Zealanders come up, and then they come in, and they start doing this haka dance, right? And everyone's like, whoa, this is crazy. That's very different. It's different types of, of dance and expressions of worship. But this was the part that was really powerful to me, because those were very visual expressions of faith. The thing that pointed out to me the most was a, was a small little lady from South Korea that was off in the back, and she hardly opened her eyes, and she was just praying. And I thought, all of this glorifies God. All of this is Christ's body, his church on earth. Everyone has the right priorities here. This is beautiful. There are some who are running and dancing and leaping. There are others who are just singing and standing in awe. But then there are others who are sitting and meditating quietly. And all of it is good. Friends, we have, when our priorities change, when we're brought into the loving arms of Christ, our dignity in Christ develops into a new purpose. And so what I want to end on this morning is to look at a new purpose. The shepherds leave to live for the glory of God. The shepherds leave to live for the glory of God. They leave praising God. The mundane becomes marvelous. I think a, a key part to recognize in this story is that in one sense, the shepherds don't change in their social status, right? The sheep are still going to be there, but everything has changed because they're no longer just shepherds. They are God-glorifying shepherds. Their status has completely changed. They are God-glorifying shepherds. Dignity is living for the glory of God, no matter your social status on earth, because we have a new social status, one that marks us as God-glorifying in Christ. No matter your status, Christian, you aren't just a teacher. You are a God-glorifying teacher. 
You aren't just an engineer. You are a God-glorifying engineer. You aren't just an industry worker. You are a God-glorifying industry worker. God has given you dignity. And he has given you a new priority. And that new priority must be expressed through a new purpose. The new purpose that you have. And this is the best part. We're not alone. We are not alone. When we go to what we think is the mundane, we can look at it and see God's quiet providence all over it, right? We can see God's fingertips everywhere. We can see his fingerprints moving. We can see him pulsing through every element of our life because he has given us value, amen? Jesus is for you. He has filled you with purpose and value, and there is nothing that can take that away. There's nothing that can take us away from the loving arms of God because he is with us and he has come to give us and show us his glory in a way that we couldn't do for ourselves. No matter your status, Christ came down to lift us up. As Advent this week is centered on the theme of love, Remember that Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. Ephesians chapter 2 says, He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Would you guys pray with me? God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for making your glory so disarming to us that we would look at Jesus and all of his humility, all of his approachability, and see your love in him. As Jesus has loved himself, it is hard for us then to even think about him dying on the cross, of bearing our sin, of bearing the weight so that we would Come to you clean so that we would come to you without blemish or stain because the blood of Christ has covered us. Thank you, God, for your love. Thank you for Jesus. In his precious name, amen.